My name is Greg Rolls. Fallujah is a city in Iraq that not too many people in Australia might have heard of. An ancient city, Fallujah has felt the full brunt of some of the most destructive weapons of modern war since the 2003 US-led Iraq invasion. Recently, in what some are calling the fifth siege of Fallujah, the US-backed Iraqi army is fighting against the Islamic State and civilians are once again caught in the bombardment. To talk about Fallujah today, I am joined on Skype by a long-time journalist, activist and friend of the Iraqi people, Donna Mulhern. Her 2010 book, Ordinary Courage, details her time in Iraq in 2003 as a human body shield. Donna has since travelled back to Iraq many times, detailing the ongoing fate of the Iraqi people since then. Good morning, Donna. How are you going? Good, thanks, Greg. Good to be here. Donna, most people in Australia will mostly know of Iraq of a place of warfare and bloodshed and chaos. Can you tell us a bit about Iraq from your first trip before the invasion? Yeah, back in um, 2003, uh, I was really, I, I felt really privileged and honoured to be able to uh, witness uh, Iraq before, well, basically before it was destroyed in 2003, because very much if you compare Iraq now to Iraq before the invasion, it's barely recognisable as the same country. So what I found in um, 2003 was a place uh, full of uh, life and um, colour, vibrancy, uh, a great energy. Uh, it's a place of high culture. So what I mean, there was um, art galleries um, almost felt like on every second corner. The Iraqis love uh, art, visual arts. Uh, there were poetry readings by the River Tigris on most evenings. There was the National Theatre in the centre of town that would have regular plays, including Shakespeare and others. Wow. Uh, there was a very strong emphasis on education. And so people from all around the Middle East would um, have a goal to go to Iraq to study, uh, to Baghdad to go to university. Uh, at one stage in the 1970s, Iraq had the highest rates of master's degrees and PhD degrees in the world. So it was a very clever country uh, that we bombed. And uh, most Iraqis are uh, learning English at school so we could communicate uh, quite well with most uh, Iraqis. And, yeah, it, it felt like a very sophisticated place, a very cosmopolitan place. It was secular. Um, so... Um, just examples, there were bottle shops uh, th scattered throughout town, you know, so beer, wine and spirits freely available, uh, nightclubs, bars, uh, cinemas, um, showing all, all sorts of mu mu uh, movies, uh, uh, open-air cafes right throughout the city with, you know, music blaring out of the speakers, sometimes Middle Eastern music, sometimes pop music, American pop music. And yeah, it was very, very... Um, uh, very, it felt very westernised, very secular. Most women didn't um, wear any kind of head covering, just perhaps a, a small scarf. Uh, but otherwise, most women, men and women, looked the same as we would, perhaps a little bit more glamorous because they were very beautiful and, and took a great pride in their appearance. So it, it felt like a, a place where there was a lot of celebration, a lot of fun. The Iraqis had a great sense of humour, always making jokes, um, a very easygoing uh, culture. So... I had no idea of this before I went to Iraq. So I had, I guess, the usual stereotypes. I thought that it was very grim and dark and oppressed and Islamic fundamentalist. I don't know why I thought that except just from the connotations that I drew from the media. Yeah. And it was the opposite. It was the opposite. It was a place very secular, um, full of life, um, yeah, sophisticated and... And the, the Iraqis were living their life to the full despite Saddam and the regime's um, restraints on them. They, they lived, lived their life uh, anyway as best they could to the full. Well, you're describing a very flourishing, uh, a great-sounding country that, as you just noted the end there, still, still had its problems. But you were going there on the eve of the US-led invasion that Australia also gave political and military support to. How were you treated when you went to this country that your country was about to invade? What were your experiences like with the people who knew you and why you were there? Yeah, to be honest, when I first arrived, I was a bit nervous about how I might be received, considering I was Australian and my country was part of the coalition of the willing that had announced that they would invade Iraq. And so I felt maybe they would have a right to have an issue with me and to confront me, demand answers, etc. 
But it was within 24 hours I realised that um, the Iraqis were extremely warm and hospitable. And as an Australian, they were particularly interested in me because they felt as though we had a lot in common. Um, right. They, Yeah, they said to me, we love Australians because you uh, have a great sense of humour, you're easygoing, you're fun people, and that's what we're like. And you know, they even said, we love your funny movies and gave Crocodile Dundee as an example. I'm not sure wow. it was a great example, no. but it was something that they knew. I'm surprised and, they liked us so much after that. <laughs> that, yeah, they thought that they could relate to us, that we, we had a reputation for being like a fun, relaxed, easygoing and, and a nice culture. And they also um, connected to our love of sport because they said, you know, Australians are great at sport and so are we. And there was a great deal of hospitality. We were invited to drink tea um, and have lunch with families all the time. And these were families we just met from the street, from walking. People would stop us and welcome us. At first they were a bit bemused, to be honest. They thought it was a... Uh, a dramatic thing that we were doing uh, when they realised we were going to stay after the bombing started. They were worried about us. Uh, they how took long care were you of there us. For before, before the bombing, roughly how long were you in Iraq? I was in Iraq before the bombing started, about a month, about four or five weeks. A really good length of time to get to know the culture and dig your teeth into the place a little. Yeah, that's right. That's why I'm really grateful for that time that I got to to, to see what it was like with my own eyes. Mm. Um Without any of those media stereotypes, um, I was able to meet Iraqi people, sit and uh, and listen to them, and and hear about their their life and their their joys and their struggles. Of course, one of the struggles I should mention this that they were dealing with, but dealing in a very creative way, was the sanctions mm. uh, that were imposed on Iraq since 1991. Um, that limited um, exports into the country, really basic things, you know, pens and paper, paper clips, but uh, everything from that basic stuff to um, chemicals such as chlorine. Mm. Uh, but what that meant was they had to become really creative, so they fixed a lot of things that normally they would just throw away and buy as new. There was a little man, a man on the street who had a store that fixed uh, cigarette lighters. Normally we'd throw them away without a thought. <laughs> he'd he'd <laughs> made he had, nearly a whole living out of, uh, that's, that might uh, be a stretch, but out of make, re, uh, refixing these things, yeah. His business was repairing cigarette lighters <laughs> so that they didn't need to be thrown away. They had kept having a new life. And so at times they felt the the pinch of the, of the sanctions, especially in relation to medicines and medical care mm. because sanctions were very um, restrictive in terms of what um, medical medicines could be imported into the country. And that, that did have a big impact, especially uh, on, on children and, and those with um, serious illness. Yeah, uh, but, but otherwise, the, the, the Iraqis just made the most of life. And it was such a joy to see that. Often I wanted to write a letter to, well, I did write a letter to, to John Howard and Alexander Downer and say, if only you could come here and meet these people and drink tea with them, mm. we realise that we actually have more in common than not. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that because I was shaping this uh, to talk about everything that's happened since 2003, but it's really important to note we have been at war with Iraq basically since 91 with the sanctions. And even before that, I was reading today about the Iraqis trying to fight for their own freedom in World War Two, and the British, uh, you know, fighting against them and, and punishing them as well. So it's it's a long-term, it's been a long-term struggle for Iraqi identity over the years, hasn't it been? It has absolutely, it has absolutely been a, a long struggle, and there's been very few times where there has been um, peace, instability in Iraq, where they, the country could just thrive. There've been a few pockets here and there, and and this is key to the Iraqis' attitude about the war in 2003, because what they said to us when the war was pending was, "Really, you want to bring us another war?" Mm. Because they said, "We have experience with war." you know, the long war with uh, Iran, uh, their neighbour, over all those years, um, where there was such a dramatic impact on the economy. Um, over a million people killed or maimed, and families changed forever as a result of that, and yet nothing gained, nothing yeah. gained. And they never got over that, and they remember it. And then there was the first Gulf War in 1991, their infrastructure being obliterated from the air, the invasion from the south, the the use of toxic weapons, the, the sanctions that followed, which they call the silent war. Again, they remember that. And what was achieved? Nothing, nothing but suffering. And then they say, you want to bring us another war? 
Mm. They said, you know, we've been there, done that. We know that it achieves nothing for us. We know that it only brings suffering. And they say, can't you think of something else if you want to do something or whatever your motive is? Please don't make it another war. They don't work. They knew the cost of war. And Donna, just um, turning to Fallujah, when was the first time you visited Fallujah? I visited Fallujah in uh, April 2004. This was um, uh, several days, probably about five days after the first uh, siege of Fallujah um, began. We, I was living in uh, Baghdad with other uh, human rights activists and we got a phone call, an urgent phone call from some doctors in Fallujah and they said to us, you need to come, you need to come here. They said, you know, if you, if you want to be human shields or to document this, that they're killing our children, you need to come and see this. And our first reaction was, hey, hey, calm down, don't be over dramatic. Like that, you know, yeah. almost it sounded exaggerated, you know, they're killing children. And they said, well, come and see. You need to come and see. And so it was a very tough call. This was a, a, um, a city under intense and constant attack. It had been, um, it had been um, cordoned off. No one was basically allowed in or out. And they were being attacked from all sides, from marine tanks on the ground as well as um, air force from the air. Um, we managed to sneak through and, and get into the city. There was about four, four or five of us, um, Westerners. And what we saw was horrifying. And what we saw was exactly what the doctors uh, described. And that was indiscriminate um, killing of men, women and children, of civilians. The main um, use, the main strategy was uh, snipers. And snipers were placed throughout um, the residential areas on the top of roofs of homes, um, mosques, churches, buildings, and their orders were to shoot anything that moved on the streets. And can we just reiterate, this is, this, th these are U.S. snipers, snipers from the U.S. Marines, I believe, yeah? That, that, that's right. The U.S. Marines and Army, and uh, it was joint joint effort, and so... Yeah, that, that was their, one of their strategies. Um, they, they went house to house. They had the snipers. So a lot of the bodies that we saw of, of women and children and, and civilian men were gunshot wounds through the head, clean clean bullets uh, into the skull. And um, I saw many bodies of many children. And we heard many stories of, of people who just went out on the street maybe to help somebody else who also got a sniper bullet to their head. So we witnessed this and were able to document this and we tried to assist um, by getting aid to a part of the city that was blocked off. Um, we heard that there was a pregnant woman there. We tried to get aid to her in an ambulance because the doctor said to us, they keep shooting at us. Maybe if you go, they won't shoot at you because you're white and Western. And um, we took their point as a valid one. Maybe that would work. Um, but we went... We approached that part of the city and um, we were also shot at our ambulance and ourselves as we tried to deliver that aid. You were shot at whilst you were travelling in an ambulance? Well, both when we were in the ambulance but also when we were on the road with our hands up, with our passports in the air, standing on a road with our hands in the air, we were also shot at four times while standing on the road with a loudspeaker requesting permission to safely cross the road. I guess the answer was no because we just got, we got fired at. We felt the bullets scrape the top of our heads. Um, obviously, they, they could have killed us if they wanted to, but that was a warning shot saying no. The answer was no. They weren't going to let us uh, cross with the aid, which is which breaches several of the Geneva mm. Conventions, of course. I was about to say, that sounds to me like a war crime, actually. Uh, actually, it's exactly what it is. Mm. It's exactly what it is, which is why we felt it was so important for us to document all of this, and, uh, and which, which is what we've done. We've tried to draw attention to it. Uh, it's had a bit of attention here and there, but by far not the response that it deserves. And this is why um, myself and two other colleagues are really examining what's, what else is behind this. Um, uh, the reason why human rights seem to work, be available to some people in the international community but not others. And I'm currently researching and writing a book on Fallujah with two colleagues, um, a soldier who... Uh, well, a Marine who fought in the second attack in Fallujah, Ross Caputi. He since formed an organisation called Justice for Fallujah. And um, Richard Hill, uh, an academic uh, connected to Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at Sydney University. So we're banding together an activist, an academic and a soldier to record and document what happened in Fallujah, but also to analyse 
why was it that these people seem to be cast out from the international community? And we go deep into this whole concept of Orientalism, mm. um, the barbarian other, that, you know, the civilization versus barbarism. And what we realise was that the whole city of Fallujah was basically stereotyped as all being terrorists, as all being uh, violent. And it was hard to see the media almost put every man, woman and child into the same category. And that's why it seemed to be so easy for the media um, not to be really concerned about the, the massive civilian deaths because these people were considered um, all to be violent terrorists. Yeah, it's been very interesting to analyse the media coverage at the time and this is revealed very starkly in our analysis. Uh, you're listening to the Radioactive Show on 3cr.org.au or 855am. My name is Greg Rolls and I'm talking today to Donna Mulhern about the city of Fallujah in Iraq, which has undergone horrific bombardment since 2003 in several sieges. Donna, what has been the long-term effects and legacy of the 2004 sieges of Fallujah? Yeah, Greg, the, the legacy exists on multiple levels, not only the economic impact, um, the discrimination, the violence against uh, the city, the stereotyping, etc., there's also been a terrible environmental legacy and um, health issues as well. So what we've seen uh, in Fallujah over the past 10 years is a dramatic increase in the level of birth deformities in the city and also uh, tumours and cancers. So the Fallujah City Hospital has been documenting uh, these statistics for the last a uh, few years, and have found at least a 15% um, increase. So what we're seeing is um, congenital heart defects, other types of um, uh, abnormalities, also seeing a dramatic increase in miscarriage and in stillborn births. Uh, it's getting to the stage now where the doctors are advising the women of Fallujah to, just to not get pregnant. They say it's unlikely at this point that you'll give birth um, to a healthy child. Um, so that's a very dramatic thing uh, for a city and, and for young women to hear that, young women who would expect that they um, would, would have a, a healthy family. So the doctors are trying to investigate what is at the heart of this. One of the problems for Fallujah has been that there's been very little um, interest from the scientific community or NGOs to research this, so there's only been a few studies here and there. But um, what is alleged, or the theory is that um, the birth deformities result from toxic pollution uh, left in the city uh, as a result of the weapons used in the sieges in 2004. So we know that white phosphorus uh, was used as a weapon, uh, widely, we don't know the long-term impact of that. We know that conventional conventional weapons were used um, in very intense, um, small residential areas. So, can you just tell us a bit about? I don't think many people would actually know about white phosphorus, what its military use is, and then actually what its effect on people is. Do you mind just briefly to explaining white phosphorus for us? Well, white phosphorus is usually usually used as um, uh, to to light an area, you know, that, that it's usually not used as a, a direct weapon. Um, it's used like as a flare um, or, for example, um, soldiers might be going house to house and they might fire white phosphorus into a room to light up the room and then go in. Um, but what we know now um, from eyewitnesses, from soldiers, from testimony is that white phosphorus was actually used in a direct fire role um, towards people, which caused a terrible burning on the skin. The skin would burn and just not go out. And so this was, um, yeah, breaching international law using um, white phosphorus in a direct fire role. Do you think it was used, uh, it almost sounds like a form of punishment, it could well have been, yeah, it could well have been, yeah. And um, soldiers uh, at the time um, certainly give testimony 
that there wasn't much thought given, um, that there wasn't really any hesitation that it be used in a direct fire role because the soldiers were just, um, they had been yeah, pretty much brainwashed to, to believe that every person that they saw would be a threat, that in every home that there was danger and that every person um, should be should be killed or and so they there was no really hesitation which is why the use became out of out of control and out of the convention and what was some so, of the uh, well, yeah go on sorry yeah so that's why there were there were breaches then of the international weapons conventions in the way that white phosphorus was used so the immediate the immediate impact was the this bizarre burning of the skin uh, so we ended up seeing bodies with this um, charring and burning that, that was very unusual. So they would, they would have died a very long and painful death. Now, as for the long-term legacy, well, you know, there's still not enough research done on this. Uh, we know that white phosphorus can affect the lungs uh, in a terrible way when it's embedded into the lungs. So many people may have suffered uh, afterwards from that. But, but still, there is really very, very little research uh, done on this because it because it shouldn't be used in a direct fire role. That's why there hasn't been much research done. Uh, of course, the other issues uh, is lead and mercury, which can uh, have terrible impacts on the, on the human um, body when um, exposed to high levels of lead and mercury. And because um, the Battle of Fallujah were played out on the streets and homes of um, ordinary Fallujans, then they came back to this toxic environment. Remember, wars today are wars of the city. Um, they're not played out in a distant battlefield. They're played out in the parks, um, the residential neighbourhoods of ordinary people. That's why um, there was such an impact, we believe, on, on ordinary people in terms of them having being exposed then to this toxic pollution. And, of course, there's also allegations um, that weapons containing depleted uranium were also used in Fallujah. And this is still being uh, investigated. Um, the International Campaign to Ban Uranium Weapons lodged a Freedom of Information uh, request with the US military um, to, to get answers on this. Uh, that Freedom of Information came back, the response came back as saying that no depleted uranium weapons were used in November 2004 siege, but they said that there was no information available as to whether they were used in April 2004. So wow, we feel that was, that was very suspicious, that the yeah. response. And so basically they didn't answer. And uh, what, what, is, what is depleted uranium? Oh, depleted uranium is a, a byproduct of uranium enrichments. It's basically a waste product. Um, the reason why depleted uranium is used with weapons is, that, is because of its density. It's one of the most densest materials known, so it's used for its armour-piercing capabilities. So a tank, short, tank shell uh, alloyed with depleted uranium would, would be able to smash anything. The problem is that then the depleted uranium disperses into the air as um, dust particles and falls to the ground, leaches into the soil and water sources, and then becomes an environmental catastrophe with a half-life of half a billion years. We know um, depleted uranium has a high level of it's, it's toxic and radioactive. It's chemically toxic. So it has a very terrible impact on the human body and also uh, the environment. So the question is still there as to whether depleted uranium weapons were used in, in either April, November or other times. There is evidence that they were used on the outskirts of Fallujah. And so the research is still being done on the types of weapons used. And, and to be honest, it's probably a combination of all of these uh, weapons and the, the very intense use of conventional weapons that has resulted in this um, health crisis uh, for the city. And that's just on top of everything else that the city uh, has suffered. Um, this is such a dramatic impact um, that we've labelled, my colleagues and I, what happened in Fallujah as a case of herbicide, the killing of a city. Um, we're comparing it to the ancient sacking of a city. Um, whereas there would be an attack and essentially the city would cease to exist after that. Um, there's only one comparison we were able to make. We had to go back to antiquity to find a, a comparison with Fallujah, and that is Rome's sacking of Carthage. 
uh, in ancient times where, in effect, the city of Carthage ceased to exist and it was, um, it was strewn with salt and toxic herbs so that it would never revive and never be fertile again. So we're taking that as, a, as an image, as a metaphor of what happened in Fallujah. That's an interesting that the city analogy was ransacked. because, is, you know, Carthage was, was a, you know, a, a brutal enemy of Rome. They were seen as, you know, inhuman and not, you know, they, they shouldn't exist because they're so bad and they fought a very long war. What made the U.S. Army and, the, you know, the U.S.-backed Iraqi Army uh, so angry at the Fallujians? Why this treatment? Well, there was um, there was particular incidences that we could trace back to, but I think there's a wider context. I think um, Fallujah was used as an example. There was always a high level of resistance coming out of Fallujah um, from 2003 onwards, and I think the the coalition provisional um, authority, so the interim governing council in Iraq, the, the, the American Council wanted to set an example to other places in Iraq to say if you want to resist, if you want to cause problems, this is what will happen. And this isn't just speculation on my part. Um, they actually said that. They actually said we will make an example. Um, this has come out of the mouths of military leaders at the time and governing leaders at the time. But there is one particular incident that many would trace back to at least the 2004 attacks, and that is um, the killing of the three Blackwater um, contractors or mercenaries in, in April 2004. So these were three contractors belonging to the notorious company, Blackwater Corporation, so basically a private army. They were armed to the kilt. They drove into Fallujah when they should not have, and they were advised not to. So, of course, the people of Fallujah would have seen them as some kind of CIA operatives or some kind of um, uh, aggress aggress aggressive unit, uh, some special operations unit or something. And so they attacked the contractors, a, a group, and killed them and burnt their bodies and hung the bodies from the bridge. Now, this was an image then that was broadcast across the world and especially in the United States. And so the political response from America was that you can't get away with this. This needs to be punished. Um, the response from the military, though, in, in, in Iraq was that, hang on a minute, um, we can't have a knee-jerk reaction. We just need to track down the killers and put them to trial. So the army on the ground didn't want to inflame the situation further because they said it could be a disaster. But they were overridden um, by the White House and Donald Rumsfeld, who said, no, you've got to go in and you've got to teach them a lesson. So that's when the first siege of Fallujah began as a result of that. And, of course, 2004 was an election year in the United States. Yeah, it was. It was. So later in that year, in November, we had the presidential elections and within a short space of time was a second siege of Fallujah, very closely after that. Now, Donna, you're involved in the campaign to ban depleted uranium weapons. Did you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, we're working very hard as an international um, campaign to get, um, uh, to get the United Nations uh, to act on this to get a resolution through the United Nations. And every couple of years we uh, raise this issue in the first um, committee, which is connected with um, weapons use, etc. And the last couple of resolutions that have gone through have been supported by, I think it's around 150 nations. And, and then there's a few nations that abstain and then there's four who always um, vote against any action on depleted uranium weapons. So those four nations are um, the United States, the UK, um, Israel and France. And Australia has abstained um, from all of these votes. So what we're trying to do is just um, increase precaution in relation to the use of depleted uranium, so to, um, to have the precautionary principle applied and that is to if we don't have conclusive evidence about the impact of depleted uranium which is what the authorities say then the precautionary principle should be used of course there is um, probably enough evidence to say that there is quite some significant health impacts when used um, so it's, it's even the, the, the resolution 
isn't asking too much. It's just asking that precaution be used. And eventually we're, we're aiming towards uh, a complete ban of weapons containing depleted uranium. There's just too many questions. There's just um, too much evidence building up over time that these impacts have, uh, that the weapons have terrible health impacts. Even on those who are firing the weapons, we've seen impacts on uh, US soldiers and soldiers in the UK and Australia as well who have um, suffered cancers and tumours um, because of their connection to the use of depleted uranium weapons. It's now um, got to the stage where um, the militaries that use DU weapons have increased their own um, safety precautions around the use of these weapons that, that's quite revealing <laughs> when um, when they are so cautious themselves. That that, that says something, really, okay about what they know. The environment. It's a bit strange, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. Donna, you were there in 2004, but you also returned again. Can you tell us about the next time you visited? Yeah, so uh, I returned, tried to return in, De in December 2004 after the second attack on Fallujah, which was more ferocious than the first. And um, I was turned away at checkpoints because, again, the, the city had been um, closed and um, people were not allowed uh, in and out. And I was trying to get aid into the city following that uh, very violent and dramatic second siege and um, was not permitted to get through, uh, which is very concerning because, again, I also wanted to document and bear witness, and there was very few independent journalists who got to see Fallujah at this time. There were only one or two. Uh, my next trip to Fallujah was not then until um, 2012 and then again in 2013, where I was able to document um, the legacy of, of those attacks uh, on the on the community. And what and was the legacy? Do you mind just talking us through what was the long-term effects on the people of Fallujah and how, how were they going uh, just before mm. the rise of Islamic State? Yeah, the legacy um, exhibits itself in, in multiple ways. Um, there was very much economic impact um, because the... The checkpoints that um, were around Fallujah in 2004 um, continued for many, many years, maybe six or seven years later. And I'm not talking about a gate or um, one, one booth. There was um, very extreme checkpoints where people, uh, Iraqi resident, Fallujah residents had to have their eyes scanned and their retina um, ID'd and also fingerprinted on both hands. So it was very difficult to move. So there was no freedom of movement. This affected almost every aspect of their life, as you could imagine, because they needed to go in and out to Baghdad for university, for health reasons, for basic tasks. Um, so they were very much suffocated in this open-air prison for many years. So that had a terrible economic impact on the city. Um, it was difficult to, for businesses to get back up on their feet um, as they weren't able to bring things in and out easily. It had an impact even on food, basic food supplies, on medical supplies. So this, I guess, was a medium-term legacy that, that um, had a very dramatic impact uh, on, on the ordinary life. Basically, they couldn't continue ordinary life as it was before because of these suffocating checkpoints. They also suffered, a, there was a social legacy as well, and that was they suffered a terrible discrimination from, from then onwards. Um, I mentioned how the media categorised them as being um, not only uh, a nuisance or un untrustworthy, but uh, that they were aggressive and violent and connected with terrorists and supporting terrorism. And so it was very difficult for a, a young person from Fallujah then to get a job in Baghdad because they were they suffered discrimination. And, and jobs were hard to come by, I imagine, as well. No, they were hard to come by, and so they had a, a, a double disadvantage. They had the, um, yeah, the, this extra label of being um, from Fallujah and then possibly being a troublemaker or untrustworthy or violent. So that was um, an extra burden for them. Mm. And this discrimination wasn't just on the social level. It was actually um, on the political level, and this is when we lead into the rise of Islamic State. The Iraqi government... Um, continued um, a very um, very unfair 
and very physical and very strong discrimination against the Fallujian population in that they would often have raids in the city, um, they would arrest arbitrarily, uh, arrest men in the city um, and accuse them of crimes and they would never have a, a trial. They'd be placed into prison, often tortured and not seen again. If the man of the house wasn't home, the person they were looking for, they would arrest the wife or sister of the man and those women would go into prison. Um, I don't know. And people would say not even Saddam did that, you know. So... The, the human rights violations and crimes against the people of Fallujah are being compared to worse than under Saddam. So these people ended up in Abu Ghraib, uh, often never seen again, some often tortured and often executed. So this was a very um, dramatic oppression, um, a violent oppression of the people of Fallujah. So not just a discrimination, but now we're also talking about terrible physical uh, violence and injustice and oppression. And so uh, the leaders of Fallujah um, pleaded, you know, for some relief, pleaded to be able to get on to the, with their lives, pleaded to be able to uh, rebuild their city and, and have regained some economic independence and employment, etc. But this discrimination by the Iraqi government just got worse and worse and worse. And then um, it was, um, when was it, around 2010, 11, 12, was a, an uprising uh, in, in Iraq, and uh, the people of Fallujah Ramadi around Anbar province uh, to the west of Baghdad banded together in a very large act of civil uh, disobedience, of non-violent protest, and they set up a protest camp on the main highway between Baghdad and Jordan. And it was very well organised in that there was large tents. There was every Friday they had gathered for a protest. There was a often a quarter of a million people there um, and sometimes more every Friday. People from all over Iraq came to show solidarity. So it wasn't just a, a Sunni um, thing. It was um, Shia from the south would come and support them and say, we're with you. We don't want to see you suffer this discrimination because we know what it's like and we know what it's going to lead to. And so there was a lot of support from all over Iraq for the people of uh, Fallujah and Ramadi um, for their plight. And every um, week, the, the protest just went on and on and on. There was a, um, demands put to the Iraqi government, and I've seen the, the list of the demands. They were not unreasonable. They were just that the raids stop, that the bombings stop, because there still were some bombings uh, in the city by the Iraqi government, that the discrimination end and um, free movement, it's just basic, basic, basic things, human basic human rights. rights. Yeah. And they put these claims and they were not met. And by this stage, the international community were really starting to, to, to notice and some pressure was put on the Iraqi government to, um, to end this hostile situation, this discrimination, um, for fear of what might happen. And the Iraqi government didn't, didn't heed those warnings. And it was around then that myself and others could see where this was going to lead because while these non-violent protests were happening, and the elders and the, the tribal elders were really holding their dignity and really refusing to respond to these acts of aggression with, um, with violence. There was a lot of pressure um, from outside groups. And there was a group called, um, I think they were called the Islamic State of Iraq uh, at first, and they were an offshoot of Al-Qaeda, and they were surrounding these protest camps, literally, like in the desert, kind of on the fringes, trying to get a bit of influence here and there, trying to persuade some of the, the young angry men, you know, you know, give up on this peaceful protest. It won't get you anywhere. Give up on the nonviolence. You need to, to join us and, and raise your arms and we need to respond uh, with force. And the elders kept... They held their ground and they kept up the, the peaceful protests. But always um, there was the extremists trying to, to influence them and trying to, to get them to, well, to stop the nonviolence and to, um, to fight. And, and, and then, then we, yeah, we were really worried about what might happen because it was, the situation was starting to be untenable. And then there was a particular week where 
um, Prime Minister Maliki, Maliki sent in the army. Uh, he dismantled the camp. He executed and assassinated some of the leaders, the political leaders, and of course the result was inevitable. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the men, particularly the young men, decided that they would fight back. And um, from there on, the, what's happening in Fallujah now uh, is a direct result of, of what happened then. So the Islamic State uh, invaded and, well, took over Fallujah. And what year was that? So that would have been uh, when they first got a foothold um, around 2014, so about two years. They've been in control of Fallujah. Now, before they took um, control, there was it wasn't easy for Islamic State to take over because you have within um, Fallujah and Anbar province in general very strong um, tribal network, and there were quite some um, militia groups or armed groups that were independent um, Sunni Anbar tribes, and they were not connected with Islamic State. Because you need to remember, uh, Islamic State, the, the bulk of Islamic State fighters don't come from Iraq. They're not Iraqi. And their philosophy does not come from Iraq, and it is not an Iraqi um, philosophy. So the the sect of um, the Wahhabism, which is at the heart of Islamic State, is foreign to Iraq. It comes out of Saudi Arabia. They wanted for many years to gain a foothold in Iraq. They never, ever did. It was only until after the U.S. invasion of Iraq that this um, sect were able to gain a foothold in Iraq. And the people of Fallujah rejected al-Qaeda on many occasions and they rejected the Islamic State. So we had a very delicate situation in 2013-14 where the tribal groups in Fallujah resisted Islamic State. And they were like, well, hang on a minute. We know we have something in common and that we're against the Iraqi government, but we are not like you. <laughs> like they didn't want to introduce the, the very strict and violent um, social lifestyle of Islamic State. And so then there was conflict between the Fallujah tribes and uh, Islamic State. Uh, now, in the end, um, Islamic State dominated. And then all we've seen for the last two years, occupation of Fallujah by the Islamic State. And it's been, as we've seen in other cities, it's been brutal. And the people of Fallujah who were not able to flee have suffered terribly. Um, before Islamic State um, took over, a large part of the population um, were able to flee and they just took off with whatever they had in their hands and many of them ended up in the north of Iraq and have gained uh, asylum in, um, in Kurdistan. Um, so we've gone from a city that had a population of about 300,000 in 2004. There's estimated to be only about 50,000 civilians in there now because um, people who could flee did flee. And then under Islamic State, um, uh, the Islamic State didn't allow many people to, to leave in the last couple of years. So what we've seen now is a humanitarian crisis because after Ramadi was recaptured um, a few months ago by the Iraqi army, that was a supply route cut off. So what we've had now is people in, in Fallujah literally starving because there has not been enough food and aid uh, in the city probably for about nine months now, six to nine months. It's been a humanitarian crisis where people are actually starving to death. So now on top of that, you've had the last nine months of humanitarian crisis, uh, two years of living under a brutal occupation, let alone the brutal history of Fallujah before that, brought upon by the US invasion and the, uh, the, the Iraqi government's treatment of Fallujah. What is life going to be like now under the current siege? What will the Iraqis still in Fallujah, who are still living their everyday lives or just trying to live their everyday lives, what are they going to go through over the next time period while this siege plays out? Right. So right now, as we speak, um, civilians in Fallujah would be just, their goal would just be to survive each day. Um, they will be bombarded from all sides. So they will be trying to survive aerial um, bombardment um, by the Iraqi government, uh, assisted by the US and Australia. Um, Australian Air Force at the moment. So they'll be trying to survive those 
aerial missiles. The Islamic State have taken on the um, the tactic of using civilians as human shields as well, uh, using them to surround their, their bases. So there will be, in the next few days, there will be many, many hundreds, if not over a thousand civilian deaths um, as a result of the, um, the, the violence of, of, of the attacks and the Islamic government, the Islamic State response. Um, so it's very bleak. It's very bleak. Um, the Iraqi government have advised civilians to put white flags on their homes um, so that they are aware. I, I just don't know that that's that that's going to necessarily work because of the, the chaos and confusion of war. There are some civilians who are trying to get out and they're trying to make humanitarian corridors for civilians to escape. But I fear that the civilian death toll in the next few days is going to be very, very high. My next fear, when um, and I do believe that the Iraqi government will, um, uh, will prevail, because um, the Islamic State fighters uh, are getting less and less, and it looks like they are vulnerable at the moment. So I believe that the uh, Iraqi government probably will prevail in this case. And remember, they're backed up by um, Shia militias. What I fear is the, what will happen to the Iraqi civilians who survive, because as we've seen in other cities that have been liberated uh, from Islamic State, that there is then a payback um, against uh, civilians because they've been seen to, to have supported Islamic State. So, um, but because we are aware that this has happened in other cities, um, there's been a lot of pressure put on these um, Shia militias to show restraint. And even yesterday, I saw that there was an announcement by the supreme leader of the, of the Shias, um, Ayatollah al-Sistani, and he has given an edict, a command, that the um, Shia militia refrain from any aggression or violence or revenge or um, mistreatment of anyone in the city of Fallujah. Will, it, will that be obeyed? Well, will yet to be seen. It's yet to be seen. I mean, the fact that he has done that is very serious, although you can see the fact that he had to do it is a concern in itself because yeah. it was assumed that they would go and pillage, rape and plunder this population. So the fact that it needed to be said is a concern, but it's been said, and some will, um, uh, will take that very seriously. Um, others may not. But the Iraqi government have also made an announcement which has been very interesting, and that is they have decided that they will not permit the Shia militia to enter uh, the city boundaries, that they must remain on the outside of the city limits. Mm. So let's hope that that's it is continued to as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 not going to be um, it's going to be a very difficult time in the next couple of weeks for the Iraqi civilians. However, it goes. I just hope that. Um, when the Iraqi army drive out Islamic State, that the Shia militias do hold back. And what I would like to see is independent human rights groups enter immediately. I'd like to see the United Nations take a lead on this and that they enter the city, their agencies on the ground, and immediately begin um, humanitarian work, the distribution of food, the distribution of medical aid, and they could play the role of being a neutral presence of being a witness and to what is happening and, and therefore to hopefully um, by their just their presence allay any fears of, uh, of any um, uh, revenge or discrimination against the population. But I think it's very important that the Iraqi army are not left to its own devices, that there be other groups, aid groups, NGOs immediately be allowed to enter Fallujah. Now, any, anyone listening to this, just to tie it in as well, uh, can get involved with the uh, the campaign to ban um, depleted uranium. But also, if you can just throw in there, Donna, is there anything any Australian listening to this podcast might be able to do around the the, the treatment of the people of Fallujah? Or is... Oh, I don't, I don't know. Um, there's there's a lot that can be done in terms of an active way. Oh, what I'd recommend um, for people is just to um, to learn more about what's happening on the ground um, from independent sources. And so if you, if you want to become more aware or active um, on this issue, 
to not just get your information from the media, the corporate media, but to really um, seek out independent sources of information and news and, and go behind the scenes. So then whatever response you might make will be um, far more informed and appropriate. I think what the help the people of Fallujah will need in the next um, few weeks will be humanitarian. So I would recommend people seeking out the NGOs that will be on the ground in Fallujah in the coming weeks and find out ways to support those NGOs. Also up in Kurdistan, there are many groups working with uh, refugees on the ground in Kurdistan trying to support the people in refugee camps up there and many of those people are from Fallujah. So again, how, how to support those groups working on the ground in those camps up in the north. And where can people get the news from that you mentioned? Do you have a recommendation for great, a, a good way to seek that alternative news? Well, um, websites coming out, news sites coming out of um, the Middle East, such as Al Arabiya, um, sometimes Al Jazeera and others, um, but also um, good old um, social media, to be honest, is a good source because what you have is people from Fallujah and surrounding areas tweeting or putting updates on Facebook as it's happening. And so um, what I do is I follow people who are there on the ground and get information direct from the source. So a bit of research um, would probably wouldn't take too long to be able to find um, on both Facebook and, and Twitter uh, those who are in the area and who are sending out reports from the ground, and that's what I'd recommend, as well people... as analysis coming out of the Middle East itself. How can people follow you on Twitter, Donna? Uh, my handle is just um, at Donna Mulhern. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to put some links up on the website with this podcast to the band Depleted Uranium's Weapons and to Donna's Twitter handle, if that's okay with you, Donna. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, great. Donna Mulhern, a long-time activist, writer, journalist and friend of the Iraqi people. Her book is Ordinary Courage from 2010. I encourage everybody to read it. It is a great read. Donna, thank you for your courage, your work and your time today. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show. My name is Greg Rolls. The full interview will be podcast at 3cr.org.au after you've heard the show. If you'd like to contact us, you can please email us radioactive.3cr at gmail.com. This has been The Radioactive Show broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network.